0: 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Today we're going to talk about different Bible verses that on the surface may seem to contradict the doctrine of the Trinity. welcome to the doctrine for doxology podcast if you have any questions or comments you can always email me doctrine four that's the number four doxology at gmail.com and I'm on Instagram at the real bear Martin now today's episode is actually going the 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 majority of the episode it was previously recorded so what i intended to be one class that i teach at church we we decided to split it up into two and so last week was part 1 this week will be part 2 and so i'll i'll uh tag that in here in just a second but what we're doing for this this episode is basically walking through some different bible verses that may seem to contradict the doctrines of the trinity The deity of Jesus Christ and the hypostatic union, that's the doctrine that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And so if you're lost already, go back and listen to the two previous episodes before listening to this one, uh, but there's different verses in the the Bible that heretical groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons will point to and and try to disprove uh, these doctrines of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus, and um, and then Muslims as well. They'll they'll use a lot of these same verses uh, to try to poke holes in various Christian doctrines. And so we'll talk about those today. One of them, so a lot of this I recorded last week, of course, but one of them that that is not on the previously recorded material I wanted to address right now, and that's this passage in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, which I read at the very beginning of the episode. So let me just read that again. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, sometimes people will point to this verse and say, See there, there is only one God, the Father. So only the Father is God. Jesus is not God. Now, if you are saying that there is only one God and that is the Father, so Jesus is not God, then by the same rules of interpretation, by the same hermeneutic, are you saying that the Father is not Lord? Because there's only one Lord in this verse, and that is Jesus Christ. And keep in mind, the word Lord here is "kurios." That's the Greek word. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, that word koreos is the word used for Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord, in, in all caps in, in our English Bibles. So that is a very, very important word, and Jesus is called here the koreos, the Lord. And so uh, if, if you're interpreting the verse to say that Jesus is not God, then you must also be willing to say that the Father is not Lord. So, I do not think that it's that's an accurate interpretation, of course, I think what is happening here and and i did this is not my own opinion. This is from uh, other Bible scholars, but Paul seems to be taking the Shema, which is deuteronomy six four here O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He seems to be taking that and kind of expanding it in a way and so uh so, I think that's what's going on here because Paul is when, when he became a Christian, he did not reject the teachings of the Old Testament. In, rather, he spends most of his ministry showing Christ out of the Old Testament. So he upholds that the Old Testament is the Word of God. And so he he would, of course, agree that Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You have both Lord and God in that same Verse there, and so Paul believes that. Yet at the same time, he writes, "For us there is one God, the Father, um, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ." This is a, a typical way that Paul and other New Testament authors speak of the first and second person of the Trinity. They call the Father God and the Son Lord, and so that was that was just the way that they're writing. But in other places, like to, Titus two thirteen. Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior. And so we, again, when we're interpreting the Bible, we have to keep in mind the entire Bible. And so uh, so I do not believe it's accurate to look at 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and conclude that Jesus is not God, okay? So that's just one example of what we're going to be doing today in this episode. And here is the previously recorded material. Enjoy here's what I want to do now. I want to cover some difficult verses, and and again, difficult is kind of in air quotes. I think if you properly understand them, they're not difficult, but these would be verses that especially critics of Christianity or even um, other heretical groups that reject—maybe they accept the Bible, but they reject the doctrine of the Trinity—these the, types of verses would— um, would come up often in in trying to disprove the Trinity, and so I just want to cover some of those first off, the idea of Jesus being called the firstborn can can cause some issues so Colossians one fifteen says he this is talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation and of course jehovah's witnesses they they would use this verse and say that Jehovah is all alone, and then Jehovah creates Jesus, and then Jesus creates everything else. And so Jesus is the first created thing, first and greatest created thing. He's the firstborn of all creation. They would say that, you know, this verse tells us that uh, quite literally. Now, firstborn here, the Greek word is prototokos, and most of the time this word does refer to a literal firstborn, you know, like a firstborn son. Luke 2, 7, this is the Christmas story, and she, that is Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, that's prototokos, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, now, it is this word prototokos is also used in many of the genealogies, listed in the bible but it does not always refer to a literal like firstborn child okay if we just keep reading in colossians 1 remember colossians 1:15 says he that is jesus is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation just a few verses down in colossians 1:18 it says and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn prototokos the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the firstborn from the dead, the, the dead are not having children. So this is not a, you know, firstborn in a literal way. Jesus's resurrection is our hope that one day we too will be raised from the dead. In, in, in that sense, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. But I think the key to understanding what Paul means by firstborn in Colossians 1 here, in these verses, is the closing phrase of Colossians 1.18, that in everything, he might be preeminent. That that word preeminent is, is first or chief, okay? So Jesus is chief over creation and, and even over death. In that culture and extending back into the Old Testament, The firstborn was the one who inherited most of the father's inheritance, uh, sometimes all of it. In many ways, the firstborn was kind of ruled over the father's land and resources. The the firstborn was the ruler. And because of this, this word prototokos could also mean a a ruler over something, okay? Um, I think in this way, Paul is referring to Jesus as the prototokos, okay? Let's read the whole passage here. Colossians 1, 15 through 18, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Now, if Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, if Jesus created all things, then is Jesus a created being or is he uncreated and eternal? I would say that within the very next phrase of Paul calling Jesus the firstborn, the prototokos, he says Jesus created all things. If Jesus created all things, then then he's not a created being. He is eternal. So for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So I think Paul uses all things here a ton, and he is emphasizing that Jesus created all things. What's interesting is that in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they insert the word other. For by him, all other things were created; they insert that word; it's never found in any Greek manuscript. They just shove it in there because it they it it must align with their theology and so I think here to read firstborn and just automatically assume that Jesus is a created being, given what the rest of the Bible says about jesus is is poor biblical interpretation. So we've we've got to understand what firstborn means there. Now, if you're not quite convinced of my argument so far, David, King David, is called the prototokos, the firstborn. Psalm 89.27 speaks of King David, and in the Septuagint, that's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses this same word, prototokos, Psalm 89.27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, David was the youngest of his brothers, so he is in no way the firstborn. But God says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So David is, is put in a position of as as prototokos, as chief, as first above all the kings of the earth. So again, this is not a, a literal meaning of firstborn. Now, the, the next passage that I want to discuss is this uh, this. Passage that where Jesus says no one is good except God. Like why Jesus says why do you call me good? No one's good except God. It's found in Mark ten seventeen through eighteen, and then the, there's also a, a passage in Luke that corresponds to this. But I'll just they're they're basically the same account, and so I'm going to use the Mark version. Now uh, I think it's Luke uh, eighteen. Now Mark ten verses 17 and 18. Uh, This is the, the story of the rich young ruler, okay? And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' And Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone.'" OK, so people will say here, you know, this clearly is Jesus is saying that he's he's not God. He's he's questioning this guy. Here's <laughs> here's what I here's a question that I always ask when when people present this argument. Is Jesus good? All right. And and, and so if they say no, then they, there's there's other problems there um if they say yes then it's like okay then he's god okay is jesus good well then he's god why do you call me good no one is good except god alone this is th- this is jesus questioning him and and if if you give the right answer about jesus it's a bold statement by jesus okay now uh notice also later in the passage who jesus instructs the man to follow so Basically, in in this passage of the, the rich young ruler, Jesus says, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he's basically like, You know the Ten Commandments, okay? You know, keep all those. And the man says, I have kept them. But what's interesting is in the man's answer, he's talking about keeping uh the the last section of the commandments and how he treats others. And so what Jesus says to him is it gets right to the point. Jesus says, well, sell all you have and give to the poor. And and what he's doing here is he's he's touching on the man's uh the part that the man is not following. He's not loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what's interesting is Jesus is Jesus says, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow who? Follow God? Jesus says, come follow me. All right. And so that that also is a bold statement. Shouldn't he say, shouldn't, shouldn't Jesus have said if if Jesus is not God, shouldn't Jesus have said, "Sell all you have, give to the poor and and honor God, follow God." Instead, Jesus says, "Then you come and follow me." Now, later on, he says uh in after after the rich young ruler is saddened and and leaves, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So, if you leave all of that, not for God's sake, Jesus says for my sake. Okay. And and what I'm arguing here is that Jesus is God. This little phrase where Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is not rejecting this idea that he's God. It's, it's a, a rhetorical way of saying I am God. Okay. And so that's, that's how I would address that passage. Um, the, another verse is this, this, phrase, the Father is greater than I. This comes from John 14, 28. It says, you heard me say to you, this is Jesus talking, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, how can we understand that statement the father is greater than i the jesus says that the disciples should be rejoicing for him why because jesus is going back to the father in jesus incarnation he he took on humiliation he left his eternal throne of glory at the right hand of god the father and so he he left that to take on flesh and and die for our sins. So if the disciples truly loved Jesus, they would want him back in that glorious position, all right? And so Jesus said, if they truly loved him, they would rejoice that he is returning to the glory he left with the Father. Now, uh, along these same lines just a few chapters later in John's gospel think about this what what creature could pray like this this is jesus praying to the father when jesus had this is John 17 verses 1 through 5 when jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you now think about that what what creature could say to God, God, I want you to glorify me now, all right? Jesus says that, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus says here in John 17.5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In this passage we've got, you know, glimpses into the ontologic trinity before the world existed and also the economic trinity. We have Jesus saying uh, the the hour has come, glorify your son, I since you have given him authority over all flesh. Um he says Um, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is the economic trinity in action, okay? And then the ontological trinity would be the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began, this eternal glory, this eternal relationship Father, Son, and Spirit had together, perfectly happy in one another, perfectly loving um, for, for all eternity past, okay? So when Jesus says the Father is greater than I and and that the disciples should be rejoicing that Jesus is going back to the Father I think it's because of this he's going back to the glory that that he deserves that he had from eternity past he has completed his mission of of humiliation here, here on earth taking the the um taking on human nature and dying for sins so that's that's the way I think that verse should be interpreted in light of the rest of of Scripture. Now, uh, the next one, no one knows, okay? No one knows when uh, God will return. Not even the Son knows, okay? So Matthew 24, 36 is where we get this. This is Jesus teaching, again, the the, the disciples, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay now in in thinking about this idea of the hypostatic union, Jesus, remember he is truly divine, but he is also truly human. And so he he has all the qualities that a that the divine nature has. and he has all the qualities that the human nature has. Now this this human nature that Jesus has is not um, not stained with original sin. So it's not a sinful human nature, but it is it is a true human nature. John Frame says this again in this uh, book, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, An Introduction to Systematic Theology, uh, about the hypostatic union. He says, it is not that his body is omnipresent, but he is omnipresent. That is, it's not that... Jesus is truly still omnipresent because he is God. He he shares in the divine being. So in his divinity, Jesus is omnipresent. Jesus can truly be with us everywhere wherever we go. Okay? But in his human body, he is physically in a location. And so so Jesus is both omnipresent as a divine being and physically present as a human being. So that's what John Frame's talking about. It is not that his body is omnipresent, but he is omnipresent in his own divine way. Continuing Frame's quote, Jesus's actions reflect sometimes mainly his humanity and sometimes mainly his deity, but his person is both omniscient, that is, all-knowing, and ignorant. Now, ignorant is not like you, you know, you ignorant, stupid, you know, it's not talking about that. It just means simply not knowing some things. As, as humans, we don't know some things. So in his human nature, um, Jesus can be ignorant, but in his divine nature, he is omniscient. So Frame says, quote, but his person is both omniscient and ignorant, both omnipotent, that is all powerful, and weak, and so on. Okay, so when when Christians think about Jesus being thirsty at the well, when he talks to the Samaritan woman, we, we affirm Jesus is God, he took on human nature, so therefore, of course he's thirsty because humans get thirsty. Okay, that doesn't mean that he's not at the same time all powerful and that he couldn't you know, summon up water out of the well immediately. Okay. So he is both divine and human, truly divine and truly human in the same way. It's just, it's a little tougher to, for us to wrap our, our heads around because thirst is a is a physical desire, whereas knowledge is, is not, we don't think of that as physically, we don't think of gaining knowledge as the same way as gaining water okay all right and so we we struggle with this concept a little deeper but if you can think about Jesus being both all powerful and yet at the same time being weak and hungry and thirsty then that's the way you need to think about this idea that Jesus can both know all things and he is fully omniscient in his divine being but he can also not know as the as the the human son he cannot know the day or the hour that the lord will return. So again, this gets at the extremely difficult uh idea of the hypostatic union of Jesus being one person but having two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So it it is difficult, but I think if we think about it as Jesus being all-powerful yet also being hungry and thirsty in a human way, I think that helps, okay? Now, um, the the last thing that I want to, the last verse I want to cover here is I think one of the strongest um evidences in the Bible that Jesus is truly co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Okay, the, the second person of the Trinity is co-eternal and co-equal with what we'll say is the first person of the Trinity, the the Father. Okay. This is from Philippians chapter two, and a lot of people start the passage right here. They they start with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? Now, there are different ways that people will interpret this, this idea of not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, one way that some people think about it is that Jesus knew that and and I think this is the wrong way, okay? So if Jesus is somehow less than God, then he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning almost like Jesus is is a short kid and he there's no way he could possibly reach up to be like God. Okay, it's not something he could even grasp at. He did not count equality with God something he, to even be attained or grasped or held on to, okay? And so he he's, a th- again, think of like a short kid trying to reach up and, and you know, touch the, the rim of the basketball goal or dunk a basketball. It's just not going to happen, okay? I think that is the wrong way to interpret this passage. And the reason why is simply context. If we back up a few verses, we we understand what argument Paul is making. So in if we start in Philippians 2, verse 3, it says this, do nothing. This is this is Paul talking to the church in Philippi. And he's and he's encouraging them to get along, okay, and not be selfish, basically. So he says, verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Okay. Now he says, count others more significant than yourselves. Are two human beings, do they have equal worth and value? Yes, they do. Okay. Okay all human beings deserve dignity and and worth okay now we you know you can you can say well a ceo is more valuable to a company than the secretary or that sort of thing but that is that's talking about just that company the 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 value or worth in that company i'm talking about on a massive scale every human being is has equal value and worth okay so if you if you kill uh, a homeless man in in murder or you murder the president you you are they they both are human beings they have equal worth before god okay so you 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 can say i you know i deserve the same as you i i am equally valuable okay now what paul is saying here is but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So you're on an equal ground. You're both human beings, but here's what I want you to do, Paul says. I want you to count the other uh, others as more significant, more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Then Paul is going to use Jesus Christ as a, a sermon illustration here. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Basically, Paul's saying, you do this like Jesus does it, okay? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So I think what Paul is saying here is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father, and Jesus, in humility, voluntarily, freely chose to submit to the Father's will and, and took the form of a servant, took the form of man, okay, Being found in human form, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, this is how Jesus has humbled himself. He is co equal and co eternal, yet he humbled himself under the, the Father's will and submitted to that will, being obedient to that will, even to the point of death, death on a cross, dying for our sins. Okay, so that is the lesson here that Paul is trying to teach, and what it shows us here is Jesus truly is God. He's fully God, the second person of the Trinity, and so he's not saying that Jesus is somehow lower than God. That, that would completely destroy Paul's argument that he's making here to the Christians that are in Philippi. He's saying, you're on an equal level, but I want you to put others above yourself, Okay, and so I think that's that's what Paul is saying there in the the context of the passage. It teaches us what Paul is is showing us about who Jesus is. Okay, he is truly God who took on flesh. So that's just some some different biblical passages to defend uh, the these concepts of the hypostatic union and also to the, defend the deity of Jesus Christ. So in closing. Uh, you know, on this, these last two episodes have been about the Trinity and things related to the Trinity. When you're studying the Bible, the Trinity solves a lot more problems than it causes, okay? And and I would argue that it doesn't cause any if you truly understand, you know, the interpretation of these passages. But the Trinity solves a lot more problems than it causes, because you must reckon with the fact that the Bible clearly teaches there is only one true God, Yet it also clearly teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So what you have to ask yourself is what are your presuppositions when you come to these difficult type passages? Are you keeping in mind the three foundations of the Trinity, again, that are clearly taught in Scripture? So the only way to get around the doctrine of the Trinity is to strain your interpretation of several passages or or to begin discounting certain passages, or even whole books of the Bible. So some people that reject the Trinity, they they say, well, you know, this, you know, like John's gospel, the, cri- some critics of Christianity would say, oh, John's gospel is not reliable. We, you know, we'll just throw that one out. We, we're we not even considering any of, the, any of the teachings about Jesus in John's gospel, okay? Uh, why do they do this? They It's because of the four gospels, John's gospel has the clearest affirmation of the deity of Jesus. It's just like right there, all over the place, okay? But many of these same critics believe that Mark was the first gospel written. Mark 1, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So, the Gospel of Mark, critics will say, was written first. It begins, the very first verses, okay, begins with an Old Testament quotation of a messenger crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And this is from, this is a quote, direct quote from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And in Isaiah, the Old Testament, the Lord, Yahweh, is coming. They are preparing the way for Yahweh, okay? But who is this verse talking about in Mark 1? It's John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. So, you, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't, obviously, but you can throw out the gospel of John, and Jesus' deity is taught in Mark in the first three verses. And so that Jesus is Yahweh. It's all the Trinity the, the teaching of the Trinity is all over the place in the Bible. And so the the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, solves a whole lot more problems than it causes as we study the Bible. And I hope you you get what I'm saying there, because I don't mean to say that the Trinity causes problems. Um, but it, it if you're not interpreting these passages with keeping the whole Bible in mind, you'll you'll lose track of that. Now, for just a little doxology here at the end, remember, Christian, it is the work of the Trinity in your very salvation. The Father chose you, the Son gave His life for you, and the Holy Spirit works in your heart to make you a new creation and to show you the truth of the gospel. The Father is for you, the Son is with you, and the Spirit is in you praise be to God. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, it says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Skipping down to verse 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory.